0: The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and policy, cuisine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: The first weekend that I opened and I did the Semlas, and that was the only thing that I did, saying to my husband, I was like, wow, I sold eight boxes of Semla, (laughs) thinking that nobody was going to get them. And now this past weekend, I think it was... 19 fika boxes, 10 cakes, and two princess cakes.
0: Never before heard on radio, that is the voice of elusive Virginia baker Ingrid Schatz, who is on a mission to bring immaculately crafted Swedish cakes and pastries to the U.S. Here's the story of how this mom went off on her own to launch this one-woman startup, not only during COVID, but in the ensuing great resignation. As they would say in her ancestral land, smalke stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in studio is Ingrid Schatz. She is the owner and founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery. It is a full Scandinavian, interesting, esoteric bakery. I mean, esoteric, not in a bad way, but where are you going to find other things like princess cake and fika and everything? You launched it in the middle of the pandemic in January of 2021. How are you?
1: I am very well. How are you?
0: Well, I got to tell the listener, I'm great, and I've been psyched to do this because I think I met you. I heard of your legend at Elwood Thompson's, the famous local corner market here in Richmond, Virginia, and you were the talented but elusive baker. I was a big fan of your croissants. Others would line up for your gluten-free work, which was like best in class. I remember you did some sort of hostess thing that was done vegan that nobody could believe. That was all on you. And I was like, who is this person? We can't really talk about her. It's in the, like hush voices. She's a very serious Scandinavian synchronized <laughs> swimmer. And as I was reaching out to meet you and everything, I learned that you went off and struck out on your own. Next thing I see all over Instagram are these beautiful cakes and these invitations to order directly from you. Tell me how it started, what the genesis of this idea was.
1: Yeah. So it's been a wild ride. I've got to be honest. So it has been something that's been in my mind ever since I got into baking. Um, Not necessarily exactly what it's become, um, but it's always the idea of having my own Scandinavian bakery has always been at the back of my mind. And so, you know, the pandemic was in full swing. Uh, Work was kind of slowing down, and it was hard being in the kitchen, and there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, So at the end of 2020, Congress had passed a law allowing people to take FMLA, so take leave, to take care of their kids if they are, you know, home because of school closures. And all of my kids were home because of school closures. And the law that they passed made a rare change, which made FMLA paid Um, So I took advantage of that at the end of 2020, um, before the law expired, and got my act together and decided not to go back to work.
0: So what were the considerations here? There's always a leap of faith, what with COBRA. Mm -hmm. You talk about FMLA. Yeah. There's a whole other monkey wrench in the situation, and the kids are kind of remote, not remote, going back and forth. Suddenly, you're thrust into the role. We've had other guests on. You're really a, a teacher. CEO of the house. You have to be a breadwinner. It's kind of an impossible task.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. So there were a lot of considerations. um, But to be honest, you know, I don't want to paint my former employer in any kind of negative light because I really loved working there. But I, I had been there for eight years and I had done everything and seen everything. And I was I was tired and I was bored. So it was time for me to go on to something new and kind of chase a dream instead of just kind of going through the motions and talked to my husband about it. You know, he was very supportive and is very supportive and was like, we're going to be fine. He has a really great job. We've all got health coverage through that. So there were privileges that I had that helped me make this what this is. And I'm very grateful for all of it.
0: Ingrid, how do you test the waters? I mean, I know of people who are thinking even before they do a pop-up or a food truck, to have people over, influencers over for a dinner or lunch or to kind of test drive their work. Yeah. How did you realize that you had this in you? In addition, did you, I mean did you do it as favors for people cooking these gorgeous, I mean they look like artwork. I'm going to post them on the website when you do a princess cake and even the the drop of water on top of it, the way you I mean, you have to truly be an artist to do it. Yeah,
1: for sure. And you know, this is something that I've done professionally for a very long time and I've done it You know, I studied in France. I worked in France for a number of years before coming back. So it's, you know, it's not just a hobby out of my house. It is like a true passion and it's something I love to do.
0: But you weren't cooking. You weren't baking and selling the Scandinavian sweets out of Elwood Thompson's. So how did you test drive that?
1: Well, so to be honest, I kind of didn't. You know, most people would do a some kind of market research and be like, is there a a Scandinavian population in Richmond, Virginia? Are there enough people to support a business like this? And, you know, I just took the leap of faith doing what I know and doing what I love um, and doing something that I have a story behind. Tell me the story. So the story of Axel's daughter Starts in, I think, 1932 is when the original bakery opened, called Axel Sons Konditori in Krihanstad, Sweden. Mm. Um, My great grandfather and his brother opened a bakery, Konditori, in Sweden, and um, it's still in operation today. Uh, It's not in the family anymore, but it is still a working bakery in Sweden. And so I come from his daughter and her daughter. So in the Scandinavian naming tradition, I named my business Axel's Daughter.
0: Where were you born? I was born in Lima, Peru. Whoa. (laughs) Completely off the wall. (laughs) What to a Scandinavian parent?
1: Yeah. My mom is Swedish um, and my dad is American and he worked in the foreign service. So we moved and bounced around a lot when I was a kid.
0: And when did you discover the Scandinavian origins or the passion of baking in your bloodline?
1: Um, you know, it's funny. I think I had always known that they were bakers because my grandmother was a really good baker, and my mom is too. But it wasn't until I kind of told my parents that I was considering going to pastry school that my mom was like, "Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's in your blood." And I was like, "Oh."
0: So how did it work, pastry school? Tell me, do you do you uh, right out of high school you decided you wanted to go the culinary route?
1: No. So I I was how old was I, 26 or 27 when I went to pastry school. I had already done college and I was working in television marketing in London. Yeah. For the extreme sports channel, you know, because I am a very extreme sporty type person, (laughs) completely untrue. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I was doing that and I just really wanted to work with my hands and I didn't like desk job work. You know, I, didn't feel fulfilled by answering emails at the end of the day. So no offense to anyone who does feel fulfilled by
0: that. Well, we get in, We get into this nitty-gritty of people shifting in their 20s. Uh, were there academic debt considerations, cost of living considerations, relocating from London? How did you end up in Richmond?
1: Yeah. So I went to pastry school in Paris. Um, I went to the Cordon Bleu there. There were definite cost considerations. But again, you know, I have been very fortunate in my life that I have had some family money that I could use. Mm-hmm. So I used that to pay for the schooling. And then coming back to Richmond was kind of a natural choice because my parents lived in the area. My sister lives in the area. So it's just kind of...
0: How long was pastry school?
1: Uh, It was a year.
0: And how do you get placed coming out of it? Is there like a cell night? Do people... Here around the world that there's this really gifted Swedish chef. No,
1: you just apply for internships um, afterwards. And then after your internship, um, you know, they can hire you or not, or you can go do an internship somewhere else. So I did my internship at La Durée, Um Where is that? La Durée is in Paris. It's fairly famous for being I'm
0: so uncouth. No, Sorry. you're fine. There's I'm a fa- certain je ne sais quoi to my
1: <laughs> it's ignorance. It's all good. It's famous as being the first place that started making macaroons way back in like the 1800s or something like that. So yeah, it's a very famous old Paris pastry shop that now has like a global footprint. So started there as an intern, cracked eggs and grated lime zest until my knuckles bled. Um, and then after my internship, they hired me and I worked there for about two and a half years.
0: So is there a vow of poverty involved in doing that as kind of an expat? Yeah. What are you supposed to do? Work tables on the side, make ends meet. We hear about the grind here. Yeah. People who are actors, if you go in the theater district who are working tables or people who want to work in restaurants who take on waitressing jobs or other things in order to be able to get that chance to take over as deputy sous chef one day.
1: Yeah. No, it was definitely, you know, you did what you could and you also just kind of budgeted really tight. Like, you know, there was no fancy dinners out.
0: So the true bohemian lifestyle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Were you hankering to come back to the United States to bring these skills back?
1: I was, yeah. And I was also, I had been living overseas for almost 10 years at that point on my own as an adult. So it was kind of like, I want to live closer to my family so that I can be around for my family. So
0: is there a temptation coming out of the gate, coming back to the United States that look, I worked in these rarefied quarters. I went to school in these rarefied quarters. I learned zesting with the best of them. And uh. I don't need to pay my dues necessarily, that I could come back and set up a storefront and really flex my talents and get the word out about my food.
1: No, I mean, no matter where you go, you always have to pay your dues. What the experience abroad gave me were names on a resume that opened doors to jobs. But in terms of me, you know, going into a place and being like, I'm the one who knows everything, like nobody knows everything, especially not in the culinary world, because, you know, two different chefs will tell you two different ways to prepare the same thing and you could do it a third way and it would still turn out exactly the same. So it's more about, for me, the way that I like to work and do is show how I like to do it, show how they like to do it, and then you find how you like to do it.
0: Why am I reminded of, of everybody must mention kitchen confidential to you of the the baker the drug addicted baker in it that they had to rouse to get to work because he knew bread better than anybody else at the boulangerie and it's uh you know you think you you read back to Bourdain's own travails mm-hmm. in doing this and the struggle in getting noticed and the difficulty of breakthrough,
1: yeah, no, I mean it's hard, and honestly, I kind of knock on wood every day because. On Instagram, it can be very hard to get your content noticed. And somehow what I've been doing has just gained traction and taken off. And, you know, I wasn't really expecting this to be where it is right now. Um, but it's been an amazing ride.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ingrid Schatz. She is the founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery in Richmond, Virginia. How do I describe it? The baked goods of uh, Scandinavian inspiration. It's a cottage bakery in Richmond out of her own house that this stuff is kind of like jewelry uh, when it presents. I mean, it's it's immaculately painted. I've ordered the princess cake. There's the cherry cake with yogurt glaze, the fika box, which, I mean, had this aroma of cardamom. Uh, I cannot describe it, and it definitely carves out its own niche. How did you come out of the gate or what were the, come of the preparations of launching this thing in January of 2021 as we were having another wave of this wretched pandemic? Yeah.
1: Um So when it was time to put the rubber on the road, basically, I just kind of started small. I started with one product. I bought some packaging. I bought some ingredients and I just kind of put it out there. And in January, that's usually the season in Sweden for a baked good called semla. And they're kind of like a cardamom sweet bun. And you kind of hollow out the center and put in a little bit of almond paste and then pile it high with whipped cream and then put the little lid of the bun back on. They're super decadent. They're amazing. And they're only available from like New Year's to Fat Tuesday mardi gras basically so that was my first product
0: but ingrid you didn't have a tasting for friends and family or everything kind of a soft launch type thing where tell me how jarring this is to the palate rose water and cardamom we have them in persian cuisine Mm -hmm. in persian ice cream but you're going to sell to a decidedly american southern clientele
1: yeah yeah no i mean it i know that it sounds crazy but
0: you just did a cold turkey out of the gate yep so what was that first week like
1: um it was it was great. It was kind of overwhelming. Um I learned a lot of things. Um I learned my capacity first of all. Um and I learned what serves me in terms of my time and what doesn't. You know, that the first round of orders that I did, I delivered and I quickly realized this is not something I can use my time with because it took Most of the day to do that. And I was like, I could be making a lot more stuff right now. So, yeah, it was kind of every week I learned more stuff and it's super fun. I
0: almost called this show Learnings Per Share. Thank you. We didn't go there. But (laughs) I have to ask you so, what were the startup costs in this? You have to get property, plant, equipment, or you had the equipment already in your kitchen? I had
1: the equipment already. I bought, you know, I bought my LLC and all of that kind of stuff. Put a deposit in my business bank account and got that started, um, and then bought some ingredients. Were there
0: startup costs where you had to maybe say friends and family or crowdfunding? No, really. So it's literally all from scratch.
1: Yeah, and everything everything I make I put back in for the most part. You know, I pay myself a, a little bit to kind of cover some of my expenses. But here's yeah.
0: a here's an evergreen question: How do you value your labor? You kind of, you hinted at it just a second ago and saying that I realized I could be driving around town delivering these jewel-like things that are very delicate, but then that the opportunity cost of that is that you're not in the kitchen.
1: Yeah, and that's true. So I try to keep my price point that keeps me at a certain hourly rate, but my sales fluctuate each week. So if, for example, I sell two princess cakes one week and 10 the next, Yes, there's more prep time in making more of them, but it's still the same day's work, if mm. that makes sense. So it's kind of hard to truly quantify it because if there was a week where only one person ordered something, I still have to make all of the pieces of the Fika box for them. So that's why I kind of, instead of being open all the time, I structure it with like, here's a weekly sale. It's all on pre-order. You come and get it. And I can manage my time and my costs that way because I also never have any waste. Mm. I only make what I'm selling.
0: Which is a very Swedish sensibility. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes. I mean, (laughs) come on. Waste not, want not.
0: So tell me about the marketing aspect of it. I mean, I fumble around with Instagram to promote my work. I don't know what it does in the grand scheme of things, but it's definitely where a lot of people in the hashtag RVA Dine community are. For example, I'll see I love Filipino food. It's kind of esoteric and hard to find. And the food truck people will hashtag that out there. Or in a great bout of imposter syndrome, I hosted a Persian food truck twice and ran a Persian pop-up dinner twice. Oh, cool. And hashtag the heck out of it. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised at the people who shared it and the virality of it. Now, when I saw, you didn't label this as kind of Ingrid's bake or anything. I'm still working in my head with the elusive Ingrid the specter of it and Axel's daughter and I messaged you on Insta and I said is this Ingrid? The yep. real Ingrid Kaiser Sose? And uh, a friend of mine Josh Dare who's a publicist in town said you're never going to get a chance to try it but when I was in Sweden or something I had princess cake and it's the most ethereal I can't describe it mm-hmm. but if you get a chance buy it for your daughter yep. and suddenly it was up on Instagram yep. and I shared it with him and a bunch of other people shared it uh-huh. and I said you know what the friction on this in terms of the transaction, is pretty low. Mm -hmm. I can go on Venmo. I can pre-order it for you. You gave me an address maybe 10 miles away. I came up. Your husband presented me with it. Mm -hmm. And I brought it home and I was covered in glory because no one has ever tried a princess cake. Yeah. And I Instagrammed it myself. And there was kind of a, 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 a multiplier effect to it. Tell me what you learned.
1: Well, so on Instagram, the image is everything. Nobody would be interested in what I'm selling if... I couldn't take a decent picture of it and not even just like well lit or shot or with a fancy camera because most of the time I'm using my phone.
0: But like Bon Appetit magazine caliber.
1: Well, thank you. I you know, that is something, it's not my strongest suit, the photography, but it is something that I work on because, you know, this whole thing is just me. So it's, I have to be able to do something that's effective and quick. And sometimes it's just about the mood of a picture, you know, like you said, the little droplet on the rose petal on top of the princess cake just has this kind of magical first thing in the morning kind of look to it.
0: Where did you learn that?
1: In France. We used to do that same trick a lot at La Durée. We used to have a raspberry, rose, and lychee dessert called the ispahan, which was like, you know, their super fancy thing. And we would decorate it with rose petals, and they would put three little dots of – it's a glucose syrup. So it's just – A little sugar syrup.
0: And truly brings up the whole eat your cake and have it too because you didn't want to eat it. You just wanted to preserve its beauty. It's so photographic. I don't mean to be touting it, but it's (laughs) something that we're not very familiar with. It's one thing if you go get a mother butler pie or a German chocolate cake, but these are really works of art. Yeah. And how did the clientele receive them? Talk to me about the trajectory of the first three months.
1: They loved them. I mean, there were some learning curves on my part too because I, you know, I went, full steam ahead into it because that's, I guess, my MO.
0: And yet you were variabilized. You would only cook what was pre-ordered and prepaid for.
1: Yeah. I only, I only do pre-orders. You know, I'll have people ask if I have extra. And sometimes there's like, you know, enough extra things to make another fika box. But in terms of cakes, it's like, okay, if it's not on order, it's not being made. But yeah, the first couple of months, they did really well. And then around the time of my birthday last year, I did a strawberry version of the princess cake. Because there's another fairly famous Swedish cake, and it's very – it's a strawberry cake, but it's a very homemade-looking strawberry cake. You frost it with whipped cream, and there's usually – whole berries, whole strawberries stuck on Quite top.
0: Quite labor intensive.
1: Fairly. Um so th- my version of it is kind of like what I called my dream birthday cake. So it was the strawberry cake, but it was also a princess cake. So it was still, you know, a sponge cake and then it had a strawberry filling between the layers and then it was covered in whipped cream. Some whole sliced strawberries, and then still again covered in whipped cream, and then a layer of pink marzipan over the top.
0: How is that profitable to sell? <laughs> Let's say $40. How? And I'm going to get into inflation later on, but this is what I don't understand. In terms of valuing your labor, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, economies of scale, the the inputs going into this When you're talking about marzipan, the caliber of butter that you use. Yeah. Maybe you went through a lot of King Arthur flour. Maybe that's even Bush League for you.
1: No, I do. I use King Arthur flour and I love- This stuff's
0: flour. expensive and- Well, it, with it is- With supply chain issues It too. is in
1: the store. um, But I use contacts through restaurant industry um, and order through them so that I couldn't take advantage of their wholesale discounts and buy in the larger quantities that I need. But for a while, I still do sometimes buy at Costco and things. For the marzipan, you know, at the store, if you were to buy marzipan, you know, you get like a, that little four ounce tube right. for, you know, eight, nine bucks. I make my own.
0: You crush the almonds and... No,
1: I buy almond flour, but I do make my own marzipan. So that in and of itself saves... More than 70% on the price of marzipan.
0: Fascinating. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ingrid Schatz. She is uh, bringing Scandinavian baked goods to the South here in Richmond, Virginia, Axel's Daughter Bakery. Please do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to mom and dad. You can catch us on Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great commonwealth. We are in northern Virginia on WERA. That's Radio Arlington, and you can get it in much of D.C. We're down in Asheville, North Carolina, where the big bears roam on WPVM and out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to the elusive Ingrid Schatz, founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery, which brought Scandinavian-inspired cottage bakery fair to Richmond, Virginia. It's now celebrating, what, its 17th month in business. It opened during the dead of the pandemic. Oh, gosh. Yeah.
1: I, I haven't even counted the months. I feel like a bad mother to my bakery.
0: <laughs> Don't say that. Where did you learn um, kind of the uh, back office stuff, accounting stuff, how to do cost accounting? You started getting into the discipline of buying in bulk and these things. I mean, yes, you went to college. Yes, you worked in a retail environment. But you've devoted your life to the craft itself of, of baking. It's true.
1: Yeah. Um, so when I ran the bakery over at Elwood Thompson's, that was a lot of my job was cost of goods, labor, um, maintaining the profitability of the department.
0: Oh, they measured it separately?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I had financials that I was responsible for every month or period, as we called them. So that's where I learned it. You know, I had to input all of my invoices. I had to update my inventory sheets with how much everything cost. You know, there was there was a lot.
0: Is there anything you can share with us in terms of, uh, I guess, a year and a half into this, how the run rate of the business is? How, if you don't want to share revenue numbers or something, but how many deliverables you have per run?
1: Um. So it's gone up a lot. You know, in the beginning, the first weekend that I opened and I did the Semlas and that was the only thing that I did, I was like saying to my husband, I was like, wow, I sold eight boxes of Semla, (laughs) thinking that nobody was going to get them, you know. And now this past weekend, um, I think it was 19 fika boxes, eight cakes, 10 cakes um, and two princess cakes.
0: Which inevitably has people asking, do you bring on variable staff?
1: No, it's only me.
0: (laughs) At what point does it kind of say, listen, it's worth my while to replicate myself? It's not like you could 3D print these things.
1: No, it's true. Um, It is starting to get to that point, especially for the fall as things are going to get only busier. Um, The summer is generally always a pretty slow season for baked goods. People, you know, no one wants like a cinnamon bun in the July heat.
0: I do. Well, I mean, yes, they're still delicious. Your cinnamon buns are out of control. This is not like airport fare. This is, I don't know how much butter you put into them or.
1: There's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In the dough and Uh in the filling. But anyway, I digress. So it's grown a lot. It's only me still. I'm doing all of the answering of DMs and photography and Organizing the orders and making all of the things and doing all of the dishes.
0: Your business partner, quote unquote, is your husband.
1: Basically, yeah.
0: So in, in talks on the pillow, you must be saying, at some point, it's worth my while. You make a leap of faith. Yeah. Maybe to bring in an admin person or something, or you're you're not stretched at this point. Like, what if? What's the threshold? You get fifty units to deliver. Yeah. Where it's impossible, because again, you're also a mother.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and. I also value my time outside of work. But yes, it is getting to the point where it is becoming bigger than just me. Um, So I have to make the next big leap of faith. You know, I have to move into a storefront or a ghost kitchen or something like that where I can scale up. Because even, you know, doing it at home, you can scale up only to as much Spaces you have to bake and store things. But if I were to go into a larger kitchen, I could scale up and possibly not need to hire somebody because I could just make more every time I make something.
0: Talk to me about that capacity utilization, because clearly so many restaurants and bakeries and the like have closed. Mm-hmm. We had the unthinkable happen with Starbucks closing left and right because they want to go in the form factor of the drive-ins and
1: mm-hmm.
0: places that just could not survive the first shock of the kind of the PPP wave of, yeah. of 2020. And on top of that, there's a new thinking with ghost kitchens and partial time. If you were to moonlight at a place like take over the evening hours when a place that doesn't have dinner is not being used, are there more opportunities in that respect to kind of stretch your your bang for the buck?
1: Yeah, there are.
0: Your kroner? I th-
1: <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. Uh, there are, but there's also the opportunity cost involved because that's, you know if i were to do every evening then i lose time with my family so the way that i have it going right now seems to work for my lifestyle but it does need to become a day job outside of the house um cuz i do i you know i very much value being able to be home with my family and eat dinner with them and i think You know, you were talking about how places were closing. A lot of people in the food service industry were leaving the job too. And a lot of the reasons for that is, you know, you work antisocial hours. You're never around your family. So it's kind of, you know, it's trying to have that Goldilocks moment of having like, you know, I can do this and still make a living, but I can also – have this separate part of my life that I can keep on
0: a regular basis
1: and I can go to brunch with my parents on a Sunday. And Do you still
0: synchronize swim?
1: I haven't in a long time. I, after I had my daughter, I was still on the team for a little while. And then, um, I kind of took a little break and then I remember actually, when I was getting ready to get back in the water, like I had my suit on, I had my bag packed, that was the same day that the whole world shut down, basically. It
0: was a March 15-ish type day. Yeah. We referred to that in this on this show so many times. Where were you when?
1: Exactly. And, you know, so... The pool's all shut down, everything kind of shut down, and the team has kept going. Um, When they first came back, there was, you know, social distancing for the synchronized swimmers, which is a little bit hard. And, yeah, it just... When you get out of the routine for long enough, it kind of is out of your routine. Let's
0: posit a hypothetical for you. Marcus Samuelson is coming through town or something. And I remember going to Aquavit Uh in Manhattan during restaurant week in 2001. I felt so fraudulent. But he comes through and he proceeds to have the most ethereal fickle box and princess cake and strawberry princess cake in all of places, Richmond, Virginia. And he says, "Uh, Ingrid, I must ask of you, please, to ship me at least 50 of these a week. What would you do? I would pick them up. Yeah,
1: I would fly I would help them you over. Buy with yeah. With
0: purchasing power. Yeah. That would catapult you. And I just want to know because it's happened. Again, we keep referring back to the Nightingale Ice Cream episode which we recorded here at the University of Richmond and it kind of went from being an, a an immersion blender in their kitchen thing to next thing you know they were featured at Fenway Park in Boston.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Um Honestly, if that happened, I would have a lot of, like, background work to do to get that to be possible, really. I've had people contact me asking if I could ship cakes, and I have not yet done it because I just am too nervous to even imagine what a princess cake would look like after it's been through,
0: you know. You'd be like, teardrop guaranteed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're just a runny mess inside a box. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea what I would do if that happened. I guess I'd have to like rent a place in New York and just like bake there and then fly back.
0: <laughs> How close are you to renting a place, incidentally?
1: Um, Still in like the planning phase. I have not started looking at things or really drafted a budget for it at all. It's just kind of I should be doing this kind of thing. But then I get busy with so many other things that then my time is zapped and I can't. I don't have time for anything else.
0: Are you happy where you are now? Do you wish you had done it sooner?
1: I'm very happy where I am now. I, I love this. I wish I had done it sooner, but I also think that I did it at perfect convergence of time and opportunity. Since I started this during the pandemic, people were, you know, a lot of people were starting up little micro businesses from their homes and people were getting used to the idea of, oh, I'll just go over here and pick this up. Like there was a, there's a lady in Southside who was doing, um, I can't remember her name right now, but she was doing like sourdough breads and soups and stuff and everyone was going crazy for it. And, you know, and then I kind of came along and I was doing my little fika boxes and all of that. So the way that I started it and when was kind of the perfect time to do this, the really in the most secure way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, Yes, it was a leap of faith, but it's also more like a kind of, it's like a hop of faith rather than a leap, I would say, because I had the security blanket of, one, it's in my house, so I don't have a lot of overhead costs, Um, and two, you know, we've got a dual income family, so I'm not the soul bread winner, I'm just the soul bread maker, if you could
0: Well, you have enough land. You have enough land to have a good Holstein cow and actually churn your own butter and everything. (laughs) Put the kids to work in a super Swedish sense. Well, in the few minutes we have left with you, Ingrid Schatz, and I'm so grateful for this. I guess you've got to take me into the buzzsaw of inflation because we're all feeling it Uh, at the store. And I can't imagine. Well, we've seen egg prices. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that stuff. And And butter. And butter. And milk. And flour. And there were supply chain shortages. Nobody planned for this. How have you absorbed it and what are you thinking about in terms of prices?
1: Well, so I did increase the price of the Fika box a few months ago. Um, They used to be around $20, $25, and now they're $25 to $30, depending on the amount of things in the box and how labor-intensive they are. But, yeah, every time I go shopping, things are more expensive. And sometimes I will only use certain flowers. so. What they cost is what they cost.
0: And it's not like you can go, you know, in a traditional uh, wage spiral inflation, you can go and ask your boss for a raise. Yeah. Because you're not keeping up with the whatever it is right now, nine and a half, ten 10 percent. But you are your own boss.
1: Yeah. I've been lucky that as prices have increased, my sales have increased. You know, I've had some good local press lately, so it has driven more customers to me. But I'm also lucky that, you know, with most baked goods and most baked goods ingredients, they are fairly shelf stable with the exception of milk and eggs. So when I buy a 50-pound bag of flour, you know, it lasts me a little while.
0: It's always jolting to hear that in the United States because you would hear these in kind of third world hyperinflation runs where people would run to the store to preserve the value of their currency. But increasingly, I hear it from customers here.
1: No, I run to the store to preserve the value of my butter. (laughs) (laughs) If the butter price goes up, i like, shoot, I got to go buy some at a lower price elsewhere.
0: Well, close us out, Ingrid Chats, Axel's Daughter Bakery. You're going to hear about this, Um, just like we've had Kia Wingfield on of uh, Candy Valley Cake Pop Company. It was like the accidental cake pop queen of uh, Virginia in the Eastern Seaboard. Next thing you know, you're seeing her on the Food Network and and other places. I believe you're going to hear about Ingrid Schatz, naturally. Uh, but I've, I predicted it well with Nightingale. I guess I should be a, a food angel investor or something. There you go. You could name a cake after me, the angel investor. Okay, uh, okay. I'm not even that funny. But close us out. Uh, best practices, tips to other moms, tips to other people that are itchy about moving on. So,
1: you know, I've always liked the or the thought, I guess, that, you know, everything is hard before you try. You know, if you don't do it, you'll never know if you can do it. And for a long time, I was like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, I'm not that person. Um, And then I did it. And it's been amazing. And yeah, I've there are some things that I have failed at. And yeah, there are a lot of things that I learned. But it's been amazing doing it and learning it and watching it grow and seeing people positively react to the things that you've created and kind of, you know.
0: Is there a peculiar Swedish word for this? I know German is schadenfreude for something else. But is it like baker for I don't know. I'm just trying to flex. So. I don't think
1: so. But <laughs> in- yeah, no, I mean, if, if you want to do it, start dipping your toes in and just go for it. It's in- not as hard as you think.
0: Ingrid Schatz, founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery, founded during the pandemic, Scandinavian-inspired cottage bakery in Richmond, Virginia. Give us your social media particulars.
1: Uh, so on Instagram, it's Axel's Daughter Bakery, um, and it's Axel's Daughter on Facebook.
0: And you've now been drafted to come and co-host the show with me. Oh, excellent. I like your voice. I like your outlook. Ingrid Schatz, our guest, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find me on MySpace somewhere. I was talking with Ingrid Schatz on her mission to bring Swedish desserts to the United States all from scratch, all by hand, and out of her home kitchen in Richmond. I wanted to close out this episode with an excerpt from The Wayback Machine, some of my 2019 chat with Rachel Sobel, the popular mommy blogger behind Wine and Cheez-Its. She figured out how to launch a brand and eke out a living through an almost blinding transparency online. Joining us from her mom cave in South Florida, uh, it's her closet where she actually live streams from weekly for an enormous audience across the world. Rachel Sobel, writer and blogger, creator of Wine and Cheese. its have I described you correctly?
2: I-, I feel like you nailed it. I think that's pretty perfect. And I am in my mom cave.
0: <laughs> this, is a, this is not just a gimmick. It's the only place you can hide from your kids and broadcast this show and you live stream it every week from your closet?
2: I do. And it really, it you know, I think every mother can relate to the fact that your children are just all over you 24 hours a day following you, you have no space. And so when I decided to branch out from writing and do a little show of my own, I figured out that really the only space in my entire house where nobody would follow me was my own little tiny walk in closet where I could shut the door, be by myself and talk to a million people whose faces I couldn't see.
0: You know, Rachel, I, I always tell my friends that I decided long ago never to walk in, in anyone's shadow, but um, you really decided to go on, uh, uh, on your own way. We spoke several <laughs> years ago. You were in PR. You, you had a bit of, like many people, uh, a bit of a kind of an employment, quarter life, existential crisis, and what the heck do I want to do? Um, but had I told you, you know, and you and I go back, we went to high school together. We went to elementary school together. If I told you mm-hmm. back in the day, let's look into this crystal ball. You're going to be oversharing details of your life onto this <laughs> little, this little uh, uh, monolith on your, on you know, this palm-held thing that you can share every detail with the world. You can cry with them. You can laugh with them. You can stream things from your closet. You would have punched me. And also, by the way, Donald Trump is president. But. Um, <laughs> Do you a know lot what I'm of saying? Surprises. Sound, yeah, do, I Yeah, and 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 uh, I know and Aunt Becky's going to jail. But anyway, I digress. Like, you know, um, <laughs> like that it's so it's so surreal to kind of have to stand out. Is this what you do for a living? You overshare for a living.
2: I really do, and it's incredibly surreal for me because you know I've always been an open book to my close circle of friends, but I've kept a lot of information close to the vest for many years because I never was an oversharer with the public. And I think just like you said, after, you know, burnout from being in PR for almost two decades and working so hard and having a small child at home, I just I really needed to kind of look deep inside myself to figure out what I wanted to do. And because PR, the majority of it is a lot of writing. That's kind of where my heart really lived and I had a passion for it, but I just didn't enjoy writing for other people. I wanted to do my own thing. And I, I'm with you, Robin. If you would have told me that I'd be talking about my marriage and my husband's vasectomy and a miscarriage and my daughter being into visco, whatever the latest trend is, I would have laughed at you and told you there is no way that not only am I oversharing, but I'm going to make a living, it will become my livelihood. It's it's just as shocking to me, but it's pretty incredible that I get to do this and have two little girls watching every step to see that you don't have to fit into that perfect box of what a career is supposed to look like anymore.
0: So take me back to um, the discovery process of this, this, the exploratory committee. I mean, because you and I talked, you know, I, I had to reinvent as well. It used to mm-hmm. be that I thought, uh, you know, one, I thought I'd have a different career. Two, that when I became a journalist, you, you, um, you planned on somebody else subsidizing your reporting and your expenses and the like. And when that fell apart, journalists themselves became free agents. And everybody's writing, as you know now, on HuffPo. On mm-hmm. LinkedIn, there's there's good stuff, there's bad stuff out there, but it really diminished the value of content. And I remember that when we had that conversation, that's kind of the the moment of pause where a person might be able to have a million thoughts and might be able to hold forth like a fire hydrant with ideas and empathy and, and whatnot. But but making a living on that is a whole other consideration. So walk me through the, the crisis and the discovery process and, and how you finally— kind of firmed up this this identity.
2: So I moved back to South Florida after many years in the Northeast and came back to South Florida getting divorced and having a toddler at my side and I had quit my job my my real job to get my Child situated in school. And so I'd been freelancing for a while. I'd always been, I've always had a hustle. I'm not a stay at home mom where I can sit and do nothing. I just always needed something that provided some form of income and stimulation other than, you know, washing sippy cups all day. I just couldn't do it. So I went back to work, I went to work internal at a software company. And I was there for a couple of years. But very quickly in the in the beginnings of that job, I realized that I was number one, I was one of the oldest people, and I was only in my late 30s. And so a lot of the people just had different priorities, they wanted to go to happy hour, they wanted to stay late at work. And you know, they didn't really care about getting home to families. And I had lived that life already. So I already Uh felt kind of at a disadvantage. And the management there was just very, very mean girl esque and I've always had a trigger around mean girls. I just I don't want my kids to be mean girls. I don't ever want to be a mean girl. And so I just felt completely defeated. I hated what I was doing, but I'm also responsible. I have a family. I have a husband and so we we had a lot of honest conversations about finances and my future. And when I started to take on more freelance work, I would basically take everything that was thrown my way. So I would work all day at a job I hated. I would come home and churn out as much writing as possible possible, mostly for business focused um, clients and tech companies, because that was always my sweet spot in PR. And I would just try and match my salary as quickly as I can. And once I started to do that consistently, my husband and I looked at each other and said, Okay, let's let's pull the plug and I quit. And it was the most freeing, but the most fearful moment of my life, because it became real. I now everything rested on my shoulders to make a living doing something I never envisioned myself doing. I was responsible for everything from billing clients to coming up with content to finding clients and making ends meet the best that I could. And it's incredible because it's your own and you're building it by yourself, but it is also incredibly daunting and scary.
0: So what was that moment where you kind of said, listen, maybe, you know, you, you talked, you, you remarried and you spoke Mm -hmm. and said that, look, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fake it this time. I'm not going to be a measured PR person. I have to really Mm -hmm. put it all out there.
2: Yeah, I said I can't do this. I just can't. And my my end goal was always to write for myself, but I also was very cognizant. Cognizant of the fact that the writing for the businesses and the tech startups and all those people that I had relationships with, I'm gonna be honest, it paid more than just starting a blog and monetizing it with some banner ads. And so I felt like if I started there and used that as a cushion to build my own business kind of in the shadows, that was that was how I looked at my strategy. And my husband was incredibly supportive because he believed in me and believed in my talent. And so very shortly when I left my full time job and started freelancing, I started my personal blog all about motherhood. And in the beginning, it was really just anecdotal stories about my family and holidays and and little funny things that people could relate to and laugh at, but really provided just entertainment—that entertainment factor. And it was probably only my mother that was reading it at the time, and maybe a few close friends. Yeah, same here.
0: I think my mom's the only one who <laughs> my show. But go ahead.
2: Yeah. So, um, hi, mom. You know, I just—it's for me. I use it as an outlet because I did come out of a divorce and I felt a little bit broken emotionally, even though I had remarried and. Was was very happy. I was picking up the pieces of my life um, publicly and trying to find levity in it and trying to find ways to relate to people. But I still wasn't entirely comfortable kind of telling the whole story. So it was it was great and it was entertainment worthy and people loved it. But I knew I had to dig a little bit deeper and I was scared. I was scared to do that. Um, Here was a pivotal did,
0: moment. Here's a pivotal moment, Rachel, when you, quote... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were blackballed, you say, by a bunch of Boca Raton's finest mean moms because you wrote a tongue-in-cheek post about your older daughter's preschool graduation resembling a Justin Bieber concert. They oh, uh, ratted you them. out. they <laughs> They ratted you out to the director who thought it was funny. and then yes. um all all two of them promptly defriended you on Facebook. <laughs> and you said that was a defining moment in your writing. I took it the post was. down. To try to avoid unnecessary drama, I realize that it's when you step outside of the, quote, comfortable writing that the real magic happens. You say, you told me this. People want to laugh. They want to commiserate. They want to relate. They want to connect. They want real, unfiltered accounts from the trenches.
2: That is all true. And that was, it's crazy for me to look at that and think that it was a defining moment. But it really was because... Here I am. My older daughter um, is in preschool. I'm not remarried yet, and um, I'm sitting at this preschool, which I did not name. I didn't name any teachers. I was very smart about keeping it innocuous, even though obviously my local friends knew what was going on. But I was respectful of it. But it really was like a Justin Bieber concert. There were lights flashing. They were handing out, you know, things that you buy for 20 bucks in the aisle. Whether you know whatever fanfare they had going on, and I'm looking around, going, "Oh my God, is this real life?" There were. holding spots in line for parents who didn't want to wait at seven o'clock in the morning for a seat, and I'm looking around thinking, "This is great material. This is really good. This is something that people will read and they will laugh at." And I mean, I'm a parent at this school, but I can find the humor in it because I just—it's—it it's, was next level, out of the ordinary, just something I did not expect at a you know a four or five year old's graduation from preschool. So I wrote it and I left the details out, and obviously, people who knew what was going on printed it out, took it to the direct director, um, tattled on me, were so upset. And I'm not dumb. I knew that it was because they were looking into a mirror and probably upset about the way that I described things in terms of how they would be perceived. But I thought it was hilarious. The board members of the school thought it was hilarious and were sharing it until they got in trouble for sharing it. Um, and i panicked i had a moment of panic as a writer which i I'm, I'm sure you've experienced in varying levels and i took it down i took the post down because i was so afraid of my daughter being um, anything negative being you know held against her and i i removed it and it's to this day one of my biggest regrets because it it was probably one of the most popular posts with so much engagement and my analytics were <laughs> off the charts but i was thinking of my child and the environment and i just you know felt like it would have been irresponsible of me to to put that ahead of her but it really was a great post and yeah all two people who tattled on me to the director to try and get me in trouble defriended me on Facebook as if that would crash my world down. But here I am, you know, still talking about it, using that as a pivotal moment. And and they're still the same miserable people who probably tattle on other people for other things. And I've <laughs> moved on professionally and <laughs> broadened my you horizons.
0: Know what? I thought a real defining moment for you was this manifesto that you posted to um, Scary Mommy back in 2016. It said, dear undivorced person, stop telling me what to do with my kid. And I'm going to read an excerpt where you kind of really start to own the voice. Know this about the divorced mother trying to make everyone happy. She'd love to be there. She'd love to put on some clothes other than yoga pants, do her hair and makeup, and have some good old-fashioned lady debauchery. She's not happy about missing it, trust me, but she's much more unhappy about missing precious time with her child, and that's what it comes down to. Her kid is going to beat you out every time, and I know it firsthand because she is me. That got an enormous response, and that was both pointed and vulnerable at the same time. I mean, is that is that the moment where you decided, listen, warts and all, I'm going to own this?
2: It is. And, you know, I get as cheesy as it sounds, I get chills hearing you read my words because that article was a big article for me. It was the first time that I very publicly talked about being divorced and being a single mom and all of the responsibilities and burdens that came along with that. And it wasn't just in the bubble of my own blog. That was the first article that I had accepted to Scary Mommy, which is, you know, like the mothership to mom bloggers. And so everyone who is trying to make a career and carve out a niche you want to be in that publication it's like one of those milestones so I had tried you know a dozen times to get pieces accepted and that was the first one that landed and I learned many things from that
0: you were listening to some of my 2019 interview with Rachel Sobel of the mom blog Wine and Cheez-Its you can catch the entire episode it's called Momfluencer wherever you get your podcasts full disclosure special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Subscribe, rate, and recommend us, please. And follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn at radio You can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.